welcome everybody. Welcome to the Comet ML Office Hours powered by the Artists of Data Science. Super excited to have you guys here. Shout out to Iodeli. Good to see you again. We got Jaya in the house. We got Christoph, Tor, Barbara, and Robert. Super excited to have all you guys here. So Iodeli, how's your how's your week? It's been good. It's been a busy week, but um, it's been awesome on my end. Just lots of moving parts wrapping up February, moving into um, a lot of what Comet has planned for March. So um, there will be some Comet news soon. I can't really discuss it yet, but um, I'm really excited when we are able to share that. All right on, man. I'm looking looking forward to hearing some awesome news. Um, what else do you get up to this weekend? Learn anything new, do anything interesting in terms of work or or just uh, just big deals at Comet? Yeah, um, mostly just trying to create webinars and uh, get some of our more educational content out there. So um, we're really working on some new product videos um, and some guides to help people get started. All right, on. I can't wait to start sharing that because, I mean, having an experimentation platform for machine learning projects is super, super important, especially, you know, having had to do it by hand and manually previously. So this is awesome product you guys are are, uh, coming up with. So guys, if you guys have any questions, go ahead and put them right there into the chat. Uh, We'll get you guys queued up for questions. Uh, But in the meantime, man, I I was wondering if you'd be interested in in talking about data science hiring process and and, and what your thoughts on on it are. are. So so I want to caveat this by saying I absolutely love my current job, love my company, love my job. Uh, probably the best job I've ever had, best company I've ever worked for. That being said, one of my other jobs, you know, some of my entrepreneurial endeavors is being a mentor at Data Science Dream Job. And part of being a mentor at Data Science Dream Job means that I'm mentoring and coaching people through the job search process. So in order to keep current on the job search process, I will randomly just apply for jobs. Um, just, you know, one, one click applies on LinkedIn easy applies, whatever, just, just to, just to do it, just to get interviews so I can practice interviewing so that when I coach people on interviewing, I'm fresh. Um, Last couple of jobs I had in data science, like, yeah, they're rigorous interview process, but nothing really crazy. And I think now that we're in this remote world, um, I've been just applying for jobs kind of everywhere and just getting to see all across North America, what, what hiring practices are like. And it's been interesting um for me because i'm like damn some of these questions are insanely difficult um you know i'll be getting these take not not necessarily uh take home assignments but the the initial uh was like a text screen like a, a one of those things you do on codility lead code hacker inc what have you yeah. um so i've gotten through a few of those and you know I've, they give you a generous amount of time to finish it and i'll probably get through maybe four questions out of five but like i'm my brain is sweating at the end of every question, they're pretty difficult. And in the years I've been working, you know, as an actuary, as a biostatistician, as data scientist, like, I don't think I've ever dealt with like that kind of stuff never came up in my day to day work. So why is that? Why are why are we making it so difficult for people to even get considered for an interview? Like, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think first, it's a, it is a really competitive space um, as a job that's kind of seen as sexy and seen as the hot new thing. Um, I think that definitely has a large role to play. Um, And I'm with you. I mean, even in the past, I've gotten technical screens that were maybe 25 like deep machine learning questions. And I'm like, I can't answer these in a row. Um, And then obviously it makes you feel really like 
insecure kind of brings up those feelings of imposter syndrome. Like I'm not supposed, am I really supposed to know all of these? Um, I do think part of it is having, and what I've experienced and learned from all of the like interviewing is it's also okay and more accepted to say that you don't know something. And even in the moments I've done that, the person interviewing me has been like, oh, you know, when I interviewed here, I didn't know the answer to that. And I'm like, oh, Okay, I, I totally get that. And I think sometimes I just preface that with, um, you know, maybe I was doing more traditional ML and they're like a deep learning shop. And so it's understandable that my experience has not been all deep learning. So um, being able to kind of assess why and separate that from the feelings of like being an imposter. But I think like we're in a incredibly competitive space that really in industry has like morphed out of software engineering. So I think they've just kind of doubled down on what those practices look like. So instead of whiteboarding, it's take homes. Um, But it's really difficult. And I think so many times hiring managers and well, really people in HR don't totally know what they're looking for. Um, And so you read a description and think it's the right kind of role for you. And then you get to that tech screening and you're like, is this like all of the things I was reading when I applied to this job? So there's also a big mismatch there. Yeah. I mean, definitely. I I get the, the take home assignment. Like that totally makes sense. I think that should be part of every job, like screening process but having these like crazy teaser problems like to me it does get discouraging when i come across one and i'm not solving it as quickly as i think i should or maybe i can't pass any of the test cases and and, you know i'm just throwing in the towel but it just becomes really really you know discouraging and the imposter syndrome kicks in like like you mentioned and this reminds me of back when I was, you know, about 10 years ago when I was studying to be an actuary. The actuarial sciences, the actuarial profession, they've got a series of exams that you have to take in order to become like fully qualified as an actuary. So I'm wondering, do you think data science can benefit from something like that? Like, should there be industry specific type of examinations that we can go through so that we can minimize all this, this kind of work up front? I don't know if that makes sense, my question, or what you think about that. I definitely think that would be helpful in that for a lot of other roles, like you mentioned, there's certifications. Once you've passed them, it is basically a checkbox that you have a certain baseline understanding of specific concepts. So you wouldn't have to be asked, like, what is the central limit theorem? Things that um, are, are fairly standard across the vast majority of job roles. But I think the the biggest thing holding us back is that from one job to another, um, data science is dr- looks drastically different. Um, so even though we can have these baselines, how we're kind of working in organizations doesn't necessarily match up um, for every job title that's data scientist or even data engineer at different companies. That's a very good point. Yeah, like data science is different re- regarding the company, the different industries. No two data science rules, I think, are actually the same. And I think that that's an important point to make. And it's likely why the hiring process is as intense as it is. Um, so we've got a couple of questions here in the chat that I'd like to uh, turn over to the audience. Uh, Jaya, why don't you go ahead and go for yours? Yeah, I have, one, I have uh, two questions. Uh, one question is, um, 
how does one prepare for these technical questions? And, you know, uh, how do you study for it? How do you, I mean, I don't want to memorize, but um, I mean, I guess some you have to memorize. I mean, how do you prepare for it? How long does it, do you have to take to prepare for it? So uh, this is where I struggle, uh, you know, and it seems like they're asking you for everything. And when you're studying, you, you know something, but not everything. So how do you prepare for this kind of questions? Like what Harpreet was saying, some some of them are pretty insane. And it's like, why? I mean, this is like, doesn't make, I mean, doesn't make sense to me. So, yeah, I know what you mean, because it's like these questions that we get in terms of, you know, some of these hackering challenge questions coding challenge questions, like unless you take one of the specific, you know, hacker rank courses or whatever there is, all those practice assignments and, and do a bunch of those, you mm-hmm. really won't know how to do those. I mean, I don't know if anybody goes to school or uh, comes out of school just knowing how to solve some of these problems. Maybe they do if you're a computer science major, I'm not sure. Um, but I mean, yeah, that, that's a very good question. Like for me, when I, when I think of what I should know from like a statistics and machine learning standpoint, I kind of just focus on the basics and the fundamentals. Um, you know, th- those are the things I want to concentrate on, like, you know, core statistics foundations, classical machine learning foundations, um, the the data science process, right? How do we go from raw data to two decisions and what that pipeline looks like? And do I have a principled approach to, to make that happen? So, like, I, I feel like it's important to know the process, right? And how you go from data to decisions. So that's what I like to study for, but I, I don't know. I don't know how to prepare for for some of these coding challenge yeah. questions. Apart from, mm-hmm. and I, I think it's it feels ridiculous because in real life, I think we are pretty much googling stuff, you know, code and stuff like that. In real life, I just don't understand why they can they cannot emulate that. I mean, I get you need to answer these interview questions, but yeah, it, it just seems ridiculous. Uh, yeah, I think it also depends on the kind of company that you're targeting. So um, when I've interviewed, I've noticed the starkest difference between going for like a Google or Netflix in comparison to even a mid-sized organization or a startup, um, drastically different kind of interview processes. So I would say for a lot of people who are looking for like job title, job number one of like data scientists, it's often better to scope like the like middle, mid-sized companies um, in that in my experience, the hiring manager has a better idea of what the day-to-day is like. And when I've interviewed at those the size of company, it's been um, more basic questions about statistical understanding. Um, And then they've had me really dig into past projects and really assessed my ability based off of how I'm able to communicate um, why I made certain decisions and um, uh, in feature engineering or why I chose certain modeling um, architectures over others. So that's my two cents. I, if you, if you're targeting like um, one of like the big fang companies, I think the most successful advice I've seen is to like sit and go through like hacker rank challenges um, to get past that code screening. And then you can show off your like real abilities when you're talking about past projects after you've made it past that. Kind so of- how long do you have to spend time on like two days, three days practicing this or mm-hmm. I mean, what, what is your, um, I mean, I don't want to prepare too early because by the time you get to the interview, it might be too late. Yeah. So you forget everything. So, yeah. uh, I mean, 
how, how long do you have to prepare and what do you need to prepare for? Is it statistics more? Is it programming more? Things like that. I would say from what I've seen, um, and this is when I say what I've seen, this is like reading a ton of those articles. Hey, here's how I got my job at Netflix. Here's how I landed the job at Amazon. Um, it seems like most people tend to study for this for a couple weeks to a couple months. Um, and I think that's, uh, from a lot of the advice I've read, if you are going for like a data analyst, data scientist job, you might be going through the medium and hard SQL questions on HackerRank. So making sure that if you can tackle one of those medium or hard questions, you can probably tackle what they throw at you in the interview. Um, and same thing goes for like doing the Python style questions, um, being able to tackle the like creating a palindrome and um, those kinds of uh, just general coding questions, um, at least for the technical screening. Uh, that's what I've seen work a lot better than other strategies. And something I like to always tell my mentees is use the job posting itself as if it were a syllabus for some exam that you're studying for, um, because that'll likely be an indication for what you might get asked in terms of questions during the actual face-to-face or during a coding um, take-home challenge. Um, so that's one bit of advice too. But I have a question for you here. So when we talk about medium and hard SQL questions, um, like what constitutes medium? Like what would be a medium concept, right? So, I mean, we, we can, I, I think we can safely say that maybe selecting data from one table might be a easy concept, but maybe doing a self join on one table might be a bit of a harder concept, right? So what else are some, some, some medium to hard type of Mm. concepts that we should prepare ourselves for? I would say at least for SQL, um, doing things like select with a lot of filtering or having to join on multiple tables. Um, Those are probably the things I think initially are in that medium-ish in that the vast majority of roles will expect you to know how to do it by the time you, by the time you start. Yeah. So stuff like maybe window functions, um, yeah, aggregates. Yeah, aggregates. And uh, see, there's there's window functions, but then there's like rank functions as well. Yeah. Uh, CTEs, so those common table expressions and uh, subqueries and things like that. Um, so before I get to, um, I got a couple questions here in the chat, but uh, part of the reason I really wanted to bring this up was I got an email earlier this week from one of our community members who's actually in the chat right now. Uh, her name is Asha. So Asha, uh, this kind of was the reason I kicked off this this conversation was based on the email that you sent me. So you guys, if you guys want me to, if you guys want us to talk about something, make sure you send us an email in in the week to let us know. But Asha, go ahead and um, tell us about your situation that you're in. If you can go ahead and unmute. There you go. Sorry. Um, can, can you hear me? Yeah. Um, I have an interview tomorrow and it's for a lead data analyst role. I have, I do not have much experience in being the lead. I do have experience in basic day-to-day operations, but never for the lead. I applied for the role, didn't even think I'd get this far. And that's Mm -hmm. when I sent the email, I was actually panicking. How do you know what to check for? And especially, sorry, (laughs) I had multiple tabs open. Um, (laughs) The main question, in my mind, I've been going through so many 
machine learning yeah. examples and everything that might come in tomorrow and it's a finance it's a fintech company so on top of that i have been doing the finance i have no background in finance so i had yes. to do a lot of those classes yeah. so my so, main question was i mean i, I would say sorry I, i didn't mean to cut you off your main question okay. but but definitely if you can share the job posting with us so that we can maybe look at it if not that's completely okay as well but that would help us a little bit but yes sorry i, I cut you off before we got your main question go for it oh i'd love to share it i will i will definitely do it let me just copy it but a lot of the tasks the person who's interviewing me after checking a lot of the a lot of the things i've been doing have been pulling and manipulating data as much but they expect me to have the finance side of it down mm-hmm. so my main question was how do you prepare for interviews like this i think jaya got to it and asked the same question i've been preparing for weeks and i still come up yeah. i still come across things i do not know yeah. i still come across new things am i expected to have an answer for everything um I don't I mean I don't think you need to have an answer for everything don't don't feel like you have to I'd also say that uh like if this company has progressed you this far along into the process and selected you to be interviewed for this role they obviously think that you at a bare minimum meet their qualifications on paper for this role right so that should be a boost of confidence there right like nobody would block off time from their team's calendar schedule just to bring in somebody that they thought was completely unqualified for the job and then you know waste everyone's time in that respect right so they they brought you in for a reason that's because you probably have demonstrated through your past experience and maybe through the initial phases that you cut out for the role so that's a huge plus so we use that as a bit of a confidence boost there and again uh, like I was saying use the job posting itself like a, a syllabus right go to that job posting are there any words on there that you don't understand any combination of phrases right um that you don't understand research it look it up and try to go to the company website to understand their products right what type of products do they have what type of business model are they in right um if that if that makes sense uh i really do got anything to uh add to that and then yeah i will see you I would say to don't be afraid to say that you don't know something as well. So I think um a lot of hiring managers and people who are interviewing you would rather hear, you know, I don't have a background in this, so I'm unfamiliar with that concept. However, I'm really interested in this team and in working in uh fintech. I'd love for you to explain more about that to me. It, you know, that I think has gotten me out of um especially not having experience in a specific industry but still showing that I'm interested in this thing and I want to learn this thing um also kind of is a good flag for them and they're like okay you can you're self-aware enough to say I don't know this I'm not going to pretend I do um and I'd love to and they and hearing the enthusiasm that you want you want to learn more despite the fact that um it can feel really bad when you don't know the answer to something so i would err on the side of um it's okay to not have all the answers especially for more of the finance stuff that you don't have experience with yeah so it it, it does come down to just a lot of research and just really really looking at that job posting and connecting what you've done previously to the line items on that job posting making sure you've got um stories in the sense of of narratives about your previous work experience that you can tie into how that previous work experience will make you successful in this role right so don't don't forget that a lot of the interview it's not just about all these random technical questions they want you to answer it's also an assessment of how you've you know what type of scenarios you've been in in your previous work experience right so be prepared to 
adequately demonstrate your capabilities through stories about what you've done in the past as well, right? So be sure to spend some time brushing up on on some of those those narratives and the stories I was talking about. Thank you so much. Was that helpful? Did that answer your question at all? It's helpful, although the nerves have really kicked in. Hopefully they'll be gone by tomorrow, but that really helped. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, again, they're bringing you in. They're, they're scheduling time off of people's you know calendars to interview you. They think that you've got what it takes. It's just a matter of you have to think of it like this, right? This is an organization. They've got a role they're trying to fill. This role, they have some requirements for, and they just need to find the right person who will either match those requirements or not. It's not an assessment of, do we think this person is smart or do we think this person is awesome? It's just not. Let's let's see if this person has um, a friendly attitude, Is looks like they're pleasant to be around. Obviously, that's important. But also, um, you know, have they done work that will make them successful in this current role as well? Right? What do you think, Ideli? Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head with that, honestly. Uh, so another question here we got from uh, Quentin. Quentin, do you want to go ahead? Yeah, hi, everyone. Um, it's in the line of what you guys have been talking about. Basically, it's uh, what to focus on. Uh, because right now, like I took uh, two weeks of vacations on my job uh, to focus on like putting everything in order and prepare for a search for something else. Um, but I don't really know how to focus on what I'm doing. So should I focus on doing more projects uh, and add them to my GitHub and build narratives to that I can explain to uh, to the next uh, hiring managers? Or should I focus more on like answering questions and be more technical and look at the syllabus, like the job offers like you were mentioning, um, and maybe try to answer these um, technical issues. Uh, like it's it's very difficult to know. Like I think for everyone uh, to know where where to go. Like uh, should I add more projects? Like how many projects should I have in my GitHub, or should I focus on more technical questions? I'll take the part about the projects, and then I'll um, hand it over to Ideli about the questions and stuff. But when it comes to projects, don't have any more than like two maximum three projects in your GitHub, right? That's the most you need. And the reason is, let's say that I'm a hiring manager and I get your resume, right? And I look at the resume, all right, cool, looks good. I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll spend some time looking at his projects. And I click on the link, takes me to a GitHub profile. And I go to a GitHub profile and there's like 30 repositories on your GitHub profile, right? And I'm like, all right, um, I don't know which one to click. So I'm just going to click on this random one. What if that random one I clicked on is your absolute worst representation of your work, right? What if I don't, random... I don't, leave, I don't leave this kind of work in my, oh, I keep them private yeah. anyway. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's good, but a lot of candidates don't do this, right? Mm -hmm. So you just, what you want to do is have only your absolute best work on your GitHub profile so that when a hiring manager or a reviewer goes and randomly clicks on one of your repositories, that it's of equal quality as everything else that's on there. So everything you have on your profile adequately demonstrates your abilities as a candidate. So um, that that's going to be my, my big point there. Um, so I would say definitely two, three projects at the most, and then spend some of your time going through uh, practice problems like on HackerRank's platform's good, so is lead code. Um, I'll, I'll drop a couple of links here as, uh, as Iodeli, um goes and um, 
talks about the questions. Yeah. So I would say, um, again, kind of base this off of the uh, actual job description, but you might want to take a slice from a couple different categories, right? So you may be asked a couple statistical questions, a couple questions on data engineering, data wrangling. Um, and then I've gotten a lot of obviously a couple questions on machine learning, um, as well as uh, I would prepare for having something around data visualization or communicating results. So um, one of the good ways to prepare for that, um, there's a lot of good texts out there about data storytelling, um, but I would try and prep a couple big areas in each of those. So um, for each stage of the interview process, so you may come across a, a company that um, they, they do a hiring uh, HR screening, then the technical interview. So you can just work on the technical, uh, you know, uh, questions and then going into your past projects, the statistical questions for the later interviews. So I hope that's kind of helpful. Yes. Yes, it is. It is. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in terms of how to allocate your time, like you really do have to, to allocate it equally to each part of it, right? Because it's, it's, all of that stuff is, mm-hmm. I think, equal weighting when it comes to the interview process. I mean, the projects, realistically, why are you doing a project? The project necessarily isn't to impress hiring manager or impress external people. The, the project you are doing primarily for you to think like a data scientist, for you to put yourself in the process of thinking through problems so that when you're given a take-home challenge or when you're given hypothetical scenarios in an interview, you can be like, okay, well, you know what? I've done a few projects. I've, I, I've got like a framework in my mind, a set of principles that I could use to, to tackle this problem. So projects, you want to think of you're doing these for yourself so that you can develop and um, mature your mastery and progression towards mastery. On top of that, I think that's uh, a very interesting point. Oftentimes we focus uh, a lot on the technical things, uh, but like Jaya mentioned, um, we can look for answers in Google. I mean, the most important is what you just mentioned is the thinking process. Um, Do you have any recommendations as of books uh, that explain uh, better how to think about any business problems, issues. I know there are many case studies on the internet that, that is nice to, like I'm reading some of those, but we have a book about the mindset, like the thinking process that you have to go through to to really improve on that part. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. A um, couple of books that come to the top of my mind. There's um, one book that I've got on my bookshelf here. It's called, it, it's a book to prepare people for consulting interviews, which are heavily case study based and that one is called um uh case in point so that that's a good one uh case in point was a book that was recommended to me by brandon quatch who um who's a regular at the friday office hours and somebody i've interviewed for my podcast he's a a phd from from caltech and, and head of data science department and he said that book really helped him to think through how to go through, you know, coding, not coding challenges, but uh, take home challenges and things like that. Like it helped him develop his problem solving strategies. So that case in point is a good one. Another one is um, a book by Andrew Hunt. And this is, it's called Pragmatic Thinking um, and Learning. And so this is a book more about how to think clearly and how to learn. Uh, He's also the author of um, The Pragmatic Programmer, which is a great book. Um, Also going to be on my podcast uh, in a couple of weeks, I'll be interviewing him. so those two are great books. Ideally, or if anybody else here has any recommendations, I'd love to hear um, as well. I would say first my recommendation, um, it's 
data science for business. Um, I really like that it goes through why businesses are even investing in data science and machine learning, as well as some really good case studies in there that um, help you see data in a business perspective. That's by Foster Provost and um, and the late Tom Fawcett, who passed away uh, mid of I think July 2020, sadly. Um, so there, that's an excellent book as well. Yeah, great, great uh, tip. I got another book here that is on my bookshelf. I, I bought it, but I haven't really looked at it yet. Um, it's been sitting there for a couple of months. It's called Heard in Data Science Interviews by Cal Mishra. I, I thumbed through it. I flipped through it. It looked kind of interesting. Um, I, I realized that all of his coding examples are done in C. So I was like, okay, well, I don't know how to do C. So um, whatever. Uh, but That's a book that I've got. And it's it's a great one. I like the, uh, the answers a lot in that book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Definitely check that out because it looks like the questions were really good. Um, so Sorry, who's the author for the last book that you mentioned, uh, Heartbeat or Ayodele? Yeah. Cal Mishra. Cal Mishra. M- yeah. M-I-S-H-R-A. And what's the title of the book again? Heard in Data Science Interviews. I'll be dropping some links in the chat so you can. Thank you so much. Yeah. Mark has a great, by the way, I didn't even notice Mark was here. Mark, what's going on, man? Uh, would hiring managers prefer Jupyter Notebook or scripts or both? I think hiring managers, like from my perspective, would would prefer a well-organized repository. So making sure that your repository is clean, cleanly structured and making use of notebooks when you need to use them and maybe abstracting away a lot of code in terms of like helper functions and, and like scripts, right? So in a Jupyter notebook, you want to keep it clean and maybe you're importing your own helper functions or your own modules um, into that Jupyter notebook and keeping the code out of the Jupyter notebook, if that makes sense. But obviously in some some situations, you might need to leave the code in the notebook, but I think a, a mix of both. But what's most important from my perspective with respect to notebooks or scripts is a very clean, well-organized uh, repository structure. What do you think, Aideli? Yeah, I would say I agree with that. But I think um, in, in the past, when I've been asked to go through my projects, there has been a strong... Um, affinity for Jupyter Notebooks just for um, presenting. So even if you are creating a lot of scripts and calling APIs in the background, um, just even having a separate, you can start in a Jupyter Notebook um, and create all your functions and have an awesome script that works well, and then have a Jupyter Notebook for just presenting the project that is super high level, doesn't necessarily, I think, I've gotten feedback that um, sometimes I include too many visualizations or I didn't pick some of the best aspects from all of my experimentation. Um, so if there's any tip, you can have whatever you experiment in and then create a pared down version um, just to show off. But making sure your repo in general <laughs> um, is organized well is huge, is, is huge also. If you could take it a step further and even just record yourself giving the presentation, put it on YouTube, have a link, an embedded link on your GitHub, you know, to have the video embedded there, um, that'd be awesome as well, right? I think that could, that's doing something that your competition isn't doing. Also, Mark, you can check out the talk I gave a dedicated maybe two or three weeks ago now called tips for creating a portfolio project that will get you hired. So look at that as well. So there's a couple of questions here from and this, Sam, there are two unrelated questions. I'm going to pick the one that's, I think, most relevant to what we're talking about right now. Um, and that is, could you please share the way of explaining projects in both resume and interview? Uh, star format, I think, is the best way to do it. Um, situation, task, action, result. 
and you can you can make a narrative in star format you know with maybe five lines on a resume and it's like the situation for this project was dot 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 my task was to do dot 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 the actions i took or the analysis i performed was dot 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 and as a result i observed dot 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 right and you can use that same framework in a resume like sorry in an interview as well and be like i'd be more than happy to go in depth on any part of that feel free to ask right so that situation task action result uh, what do you think ideally Yeah, I tend to have kind of two buckets of advice, at least for your resume, um, depending on how much experience you have and how much in-depth experience you have. So um, when I say that, if you were at a company where you had one main project you worked on, I would do just like Harpreet mentioned and go through um, the, the star format for one project. But when I've had uh, roles where I've had, I've been there a year or a couple of years and have had a lot of different projects, I would basically write a good short one sentence, what I did with something measurable. So this increased profit by X, whatever that is. If you have four of those, that can be your four bullet points on your resume. But then when you get into the interview for each of those, you're going to want to start out and explain. Um, and that's that has been the method that I found that has drastically changed my the outcomes of my interviews um, because it's really easy when you're nervous and intimidated to get flustered. And I think a lot of people tend to deviate from actually like checking the boxes that your interviewer is looking for, looking to hear. And something that can be really helpful for you guys is, you know, just take some time to imagine yourself in an interview, right? So maybe spend 20 minutes out of your day, or maybe when you're on a walk, spend 20 minutes just thinking about, okay, here's this project I did. How would I explain this in in an interview? All right. And based on how I would explain it, what are some questions people might ask me and how would I respond to those questions? All right. Now, based on my responses to those questions, what are some questions that somebody might ask me, right? So really you have to think about yourself in these interview situations because I mean, like there's science and research that shows like the brain can't tell the difference between a real experience and an imagined experience, right? Um, It's like some neuroscience stuff there. But if you could just imagine yourself in an interview, right? And just imagine how you'd explain something. It's almost like you're going through that experience so that when the real time comes, he's like, all right, cool. I've kind of been there, done that. I've anticipated these questions, right? Um, That goes a long way. So that's, that's what I would say there. I know I sound crazy because, you know, I'm like, yes, I actually sit there and I talk to myself when I'm on walks, like I'm mumbling to myself. And yeah, uh, his second question, I mean, what's your take on auto ML? Is it going to replace data science jobs? Uh, no, that's all I got to say about that. I it. <laughs> yeah, I think um, there there might be some organizations that try to do this, replace their data scientists with auto ML. And I think they'll just find Um, they will need a ton more data engineers than they expected. And it's hard to still get the same level of fine-tuned results or domain expertise and a lot of the things that humans can bring to that process. Yeah, you can't automate creativity and problem solving, right? You could automate steps all day long, for sure, but you can't automate someone's creative problem-solving approach. And for that reason, you're always going to need scientists. And so what if data engineering jobs are on the rise? That's great. That means shortly after data science will be on the rise again. Exactly. Um, So Mark, 
you got a question here? Go for it. Uh, it was it was the follow up for um, talking about ROI. Um, I'm just curious, like strategies you have when it's it's very hard to tie it to a number. Um, so you know, if you're if you're building a project that's tied directly to sales, that's that's easy. You're like they sold this much because of this this kind of delivered product. Um, but for other things, um, one, I'm at a startup where it's hard to kind of get those metrics, but, but to, um, I give an example, I basically recreate a metric to understand our product's health. They're just using just email opens. And now I, I create this kind of nuanced, uh, metric that essentially looks at all the different aspects of our products that's replaced our kind of North star now, but that's not tied directly to like a sales or numbers. And it's, it's like a cultural shift more than like a financial shift. And so like how, and that's just one use case, but like going essentially like figuring out how to put those into numbers for showing off like, hey, this is the impact I have in those bullet points for your resume. That's a great question. Um, I think I would start um, first with what what kind of what you mentioned um, was that you kind of replace the North Star and that is impact itself. It may not have a X percentage like in a certain direction, um, but even making uh, the point that you something that you built was adopted company wide. Um, I think that hiring managers, they read that, they're like, okay, you know, regardless of the fact that you are on a small, maybe a small team, um, you're doing things that everyone else is using. I think that still shows um, ROI, even without having it be as measurable as um, net profit or, or reducing the amount of uh, spend on something. I'm I'm curious to see how you came up with this metric. I don't know if you can like, I mean, you don't need to share what that metric is, but I'd love to know what your thought process was behind creating this and like, ha- like changing the North star. Like that's huge, man. Like w- w- what was that like? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think, I think the challenge being a startup is that, you know, there's really not that much ground truth. You kind of have to create it and throw it out in the world, experiment, see if it's correct. Um, and so I think that was, the, that was the biggest challenge. And something I noticed was, uh, you know, we're, we're only using one uh, aspect to understand our, our data. But like in the past three months, we built out all these new features that didn't exist before. And so this process was never updated yet, right? And so um, my manager is the, the grand genius behind, behind this. And, and the other teams were like, hey, we need to build something. I was tasked with it. So um, I got lucky in that sense. And it was like my first project. But when tasked with that, my first step was like just going to our data warehouse, BigQuery, and just doing a whole bunch of SQL queries just to understand our data and what, what it all means, what's like a good quality data. Um, and then I talked to all these different business stakeholders. I'm like, hey, I have this metric. Um, does this impact you? Um, you know, what, what's, a, what's, what's something that's like wrong with the data, right? What's something that's correct? So basically creating all the ground truth for the data first um, and talking to business stakeholders. And once I get that ground truth, um, I basically create like a composite score and I can't really go into details of, of the score itself, but a major step of it was like when I built those composites, I actually created Excel spreadsheets um, and essentially just create a quick MVP with like if else statements of like, if I change the score this way, right, what would happen? And I'll go back to the business stakeholders to say like, hey, what do you think of this score? What do you think of these weights? Does this match kind of like your expectations? And thankfully we have like people scientists who are like, this is their role, like organizational psychology. So I, I relied on them a lot. So I did an iterative process for about a month um, before I even wrote lines of code. Because uh, I got a really strong understanding of like, what, what was the business use case? 
and how does the data fit within that business use case? And once I understood that, then I wrote the code um, and I embedded it within our kind of workflow. And um, it's now our product uh, goes to our customers. So there is a blog for that. I can share the blog um, of that metric. Um, but then once we finally got that metric and put it back into our data warehouse, it was like a whole other process in itself. Um, we were able to pull in those scores and actually use them for analyses, uh, use it for our product health kind of uh, dashboards for our team meetings or our company-wide meetings. Um, and so I think to summarize real quick, <laughs> uh, get your ground truth of your data, get the ground truth from the business stakeholders, iterate on that process, um, put it into code, get into production, pull that data back in that you created, and then analyze it and then share it broadly. Dude, that's awesome. That's a really, really good process. And that's like, you, you can't learn how to do that in like a boot camp or in school, like you can't, you can't learn that. I mean, you can't teach that. I mean, you can figure it out and learn how to do it on your own, but you can't be taught how to do it, what it is that you just did. That's awesome, man. I might be reaching out to you in the near future as I have very similar challenges at work. I've got to help create a data strategy for a, you know, behemoth 70 year old organization with a billion dollar valuation. And so making yeah. my way through modern data strategy, uh, which is I, helpful. I think one key skill that um, that's not even technical, like this wasn't really a technically hard project, um, but it took months to get kind of get like these simple bar graphs, right? Um, stakeholder management, that's kind of been like my go-to skill <laughs> that I've, as a data scientist, I've kind of cemented myself in, but um, having that stakeholder management, knowing who to bring to the table and then also know who's not at the table <laughs> um, and really just talk and talk and talk like crazy. Um, it'll make your life easier when you finally code the thing. And that, I learned that from being burned a whole bunch of times where I didn't talk to enough people or I talked to the wrong people and built the wrong things. Um, so it, it took messing up a few times to finally get it down. So Tor has an excellent question I'd like to ask here. So if you hadn't made this, what would had what would it have taken to do it manually or in an alternative way? I think, I think this sounds like a cop-out question, but like, because we're a startup, there's no other alternative. It just wouldn't have happened. And we've kept on using this metric as a proxy. And so many times when you're, when you're just kind of building a plane as you fly it, you kind of get the next best thing as a proxy, knowing it's not the real truth, but it gets you closer than, than before. Um, so like for me, like I know this metric I created, it's like a, it's a stronger ground truth. It's a stronger proxy, but there's probably going to be something better when we get more data. And so it's, it's going to be replaced eventually as it should. Um, and so I think that the, that's the alternative for that. And I think what, what I've seen for a lot of metrics is like, I essentially have a whole set of safe SQL queries um, that I have. And so when people ask questions about our data, they're like, Hey Mark, what do you think about this? I'm like, Hey, this is safe query. There you go. Um, and so that was also really helpful as a data scientist to actually dig into that data warehouse and like create safe queries. Cause now I built infant within the organization, kind of like domain expertise, like for our nudge data. So if people have nudge data questions, they come to me and that, that happened in the first few months. Cause I just took the time and managers like, please do this. Um, just sitting through all of, all of our data. Um, and so I guess like the alternative would have just been me, people asking me for a whole bunch of ad hoc SQL queries, which I wouldn't want. <laughs> I like that idea that you talked about, like this metric that was a proxy. It was like almost like a vanity metric, right? Email opens, right? Like what, what does that actually tell you? Like we can't, is that a metric we can actually impact? Like we can't impact if somebody's actually going to open our email or not, but it, it, would you say that's a vanity metric type of situation you're in? Um, 
how can you define vanity metric? Like, for example, like metrics that don't really tell you much, like maybe you have web, uh, website visits or number of downloads on a podcast, right? Um, yeah, right. I, I think it was a strong metric for what they currently have. So I think mm-hmm. where the product was at the currently was all through email. And so email opens make sense because like mm-hmm. if you didn't open the email, nothing else happened afterwards. Okay. So I think that was a really strong metric. But then once we changed to different formats to receive our product, then it become as strong. And that's when the need for like this other metric really rose. Um, and so <laughs> like uh, with startups, everything's on fire and everything is a priority. And so you just need to choose which one you're going to work on today. Um, and and uh, when we added more products or more, more kind of features, uh, that priority rose up. I think Tor might have a follow-up question. So if you do, Tor, go ahead. And then Jaya has a question for, for Mark or related to Mark. So we'll go from Tor to Jaya. Uh, Mark, uh, very interesting. But initially you said, how do you value? Is that correct to understand what you were asking for, the value of what you have done? Um, how to evaluate how to evaluate either monetary or in some way yeah that that, that was the main question um that's right. something i really struggled with because I, I know how to solve problems and sometimes those problems aren't directly tied to a specific number but like it's a need that it's, it's i follow pain points rather than dollar signs if that right. makes sense i don't know if that's sometimes the wrong approach but um this approach I currently take right now. Yeah, no, the reason why I just want to clarify this before I give my answer, you know, I don't want to feel like I'm way out there. I'm not a technical guy as the rest of the group here, but, you know, working on projects in general in my field of work, um, it's difficult to measure monetarily how much money you're earning based on what you do. My job as an auditor, I don't really earn any money. I'm just costing money. But there are ways of uh, measuring my results by how much of an impact you have on reducing other people's work, how you are uh, improving processes, procedures by reducing the time spent on a task. Now, normally what I do in one instance, for example, I created a tool for my own job. Um, to analyze. Now, in the, initially, it took me three, four hours to give a proper, simple management report on a request on how many resources do I need, how much is it going to cost me to perform an audit, and then I would have four or five parameters. Now, that would normally take me about three, four hours to summarize and write manual. And like everybody else, I'm a lazy bastard, part of my French, um, which basically means that if it wasn't for laziness, we wouldn't have invented the wheel, right? So I created the tool, a simple Excel tool. It's not complicated. It's four or five parameters. I plug them in and you take a mark and automatically generates the resources based on number of weeks and the dollar amount. And then I've now ultimately created the tool online so I can now generate a report just by typing in my summary, et cetera. So instead of spending four hours, I'm now spending two, three, four minutes to do the same. That is not reflected in my revenue stream because I'm not making money yet. But however, for a person looking at it or myself, it saves me three hours. My hourly rate is X. So this way I can then measure how much it's actually saving money. So sometimes it's saving money. It's saving time. It's other parameters that you need to use. Uh, It's 
never, especially in the startup, you can't really measure because you have no idea what impact it's going to have revenue-wise. But on the other hand, you can then look internally and say, okay, how much did this save us? Because your organization is now probably working more efficient. You are working more efficient. You're not, quote, unquote, wasting your time, which frees up time to generate revenue tasks and do other things. Mm-hmm. So it, it, to me, it's always a question of kind of looking at the impact that what you have done has. Now, if you want to calculate the return, quote, unquote, of the investment, well, your investment was your time you spent to actually develop this. Your return on the investment is basically what you have saved in the future, mm-hmm. not just for yourself, but then also for the other parties. So that's how I kind of approach that valuation question. Yeah, kind of like a back of the napkin calculation, like, okay, before I created this thing, or before I did this thing, it took one person X amount of hours to do this thing, right? right? There was 10 people doing this thing, and that's 10 people times 10 hours times, you know, 52 weeks out of the year. This is how much time per year was spent doing this task before my invention. And the average salary of these people was this amount. So now I've got a baseline amount of time in dollars that it took. And now after it takes, you know, a fraction of the percent of time. And now that's the dollar saving kind of thing, right? Is that kind of what you mentor? Yeah, that's exactly what you do. You kind of find the the cost elements. I mean, there's people. People are generally the cost. And then, of course, you have electricity. You can go into very details. But on a very high level, I try and just keep it to the, the time that you spend. Because time is money. Uh, time also means if you're working on repetitive tasks, that is costing you your revenue because you're wasting time on something that can be automated. Um, in in my world, I've always looked for ways to improve my own day-to-day work uh, by developing my own tools, my own processes, procedures, just to simplify every day. Uh, and every time I have a new, how should I say, to whenever I get a problem in my face, I always think of it in two terms. Is this something that is very likely it's going to happen again? Then I will spend extra time to try and resolve it to see if I can make something that will minimize the future work because I expect it's going to happen again and again. On the other hand, if it's something that technically I don't foresee that it's going to be a repetitive thing, I will just get it done as fast as possible without taking time to build something or evaluate something, it will just be done to deliver right there and that. So it's kind of like that balance every time you face a a problem. I I don't think that matters whether it's my type of problems or your type of problems in data analytics. Sometimes you just get the data out there because you don't expect it's going to happen again. But if you start seeing a trend that it happens over and over again, well, then it's time to build those models that actually will simplify that job. Because you will invest a lot of time in developing those repetitive tasks. That time has to be then recovered in the future from the savings. That's awesome, man. That's how you think like a business person, guys. So that's uh, awesome insight and advice. Thank you, Tor. Let's go to Jaya's question. Thank you, by the way. You're welcome. Yeah. So my question is, um, so um, related to Mark, uh, he's able to get the data within his company and, you know, do an analysis, get the matrix and stuff like that. Mine is the total opposite. I work for a biotechnology company and I'm trying to create a data project within the company, you know, uh, and kind of up- upskill myself a little bit and get some experience. Uh, 
how do you get the get the managers buy in or the VPs buy in in creating a data project? And I've kind of alluded this during during my reviews and stuff like that. Hey, <laughs> now I've got the, I've got this idea and I want to create this data project within the company. Can you share some of your data, uh, etc.? So how do you get the buy in? So to to you know kind of not to kind of you know hopefully their bottom line gets better or you know improved something like that. So that's always a tough question. It's always a tough thing to do. How to get executive buy in? Um, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'll turn this one over to Ayodele because she's probably got more experience getting executive buy-in. Yeah, I think a big part of it comes from showing them the potential benefits or the potential ROI. So um, if there's ways you can, if you're building this data data project to save them money or to, um, if you can anyway tie them to a goal like that, it's a lot easier to get buy-in and you'll face a lot less pushback. Um, But on the other hand, you'll face a lot more expectations. to have this project actually really work and reduce the amount of costs or something like that. So um, that is one way. I think another way is a little bit more just general data education. So it sounds like um, you might be in an organization that's not very focused (laughs) on data science and machine learning. Um, I think just by showing other examples of maybe there are other similar companies who have fully fledged ML teams and are doing work that they publish on Medium, um, being able to show them kind of successes in the same industry might be helpful as well. Okay. Someone who I really like who who writes a lot in this space is Tom Davenport. I think he's quite well known. He's written a couple of books, Analytics at Work, Big Data at Work, Competing on Analytics. So I think Competing on Analytics is the most recent one or maybe it's Big Data at Work. Um, but he's got this framework of analytic maturity that goes from like level one to level five, right? Okay. Real, real quick, uh, someone I think you should talk to, he's he's on the Friday office hours, Eric Sims. I talked to him and he had a oh, really okay. interesting- Oh, okay, yeah, I know. He, uh-huh. he had an interesting quote when I, when I like had a, just a one-on-one with him. He said like he somehow always found the data in his roles. And that's why he started to pursue data science because like in his roles that weren't data role, he kept on solving business problems with data. And so like, he's really figured it out of like how to really bridge that gap of like, hey, we have this data here. I can Mm -hmm. solve all these problems without being even in a data role. So I think he will be an awesome person to talk to that's within our own little small community. Okay, thank you, Mark. I will definitely get in touch with him because my problem is they have the data and it's a family owned company. So they, they protect their stuff quite a bit. So I have that issue. Um, And and they they seem to be open to the idea of me helping them with their data stuff, but uh, they are not ready yet. So I think partly because I need to first kind of show them how data can improve their bottom line or their business or whatever. So I need the data, (laughs) the meat of the thing. So yeah, so I've got a few ideas with this company and I'm trying to kind of create a couple of, I mean, at least try to get one or two projects and hopefully you know, I see things in the company that they're doing that it's very manual and I want to automate that. So, and few, yeah, some of those things, but yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll touch base with Eric and see how he went and, you know, help the company. I'll be definitely uh, happy to, to, discuss this with Eric on Friday as well. If you want to show yeah. up on one of the yeah. Friday office hours and Eric, if you're listening to this and I, I know you probably are, you need to come hang out on Sundays as well. Um, great questions. So next question I see here is from Christoph. So go for it, Christoph. 
Uh, hi, everybody. Um, uh, I was a little bit late with this question, but uh, I, I wanted to ask, uh, uh, how do you relate passion project to your to the four steps that you mentioned, Harpreet? Or Ayodhya, how you said that you need some number at the end uh, that increased, uh, I don't know, uh, revenue or decreased costs. I, I mean, passion projects don't really work like this. So how do you sell them during the interview? I think the star format would still definitely apply. Instead of just having a financial result, you can have just a result of maybe you did this and it made your life easier in some way. You did this and you learned something new or something to that effect. I, I think the star framework still applies there. Like here's the situation I was interested in. Here's the tasks I had. Here's the actions or analysis I did. And as a result, I observed this or I caused this to happen, um, you know, so on and so forth. Another thing you could do is take that framework, that tour I talked about, and then just say, you know, in an imaginary world, right? If a company was doing a process that was manual. Now with this thing that I've done with my passion project, if a company was to implement this, it could save them this many hours per week, which would result in, you know, this much money saved at the end of the year um, as a hypothetical type of way. Um, I'll let Ideli take a yeah. stab at this as well. I think what passion projects are great for is also showing off It's really two aspects of you as a data scientist. One is that you are passionate about this. So um, upfront talking about why you chose this project why, or how you found the data. Um, and then I think really you can also show off if you learn something from it. So let's say um, you've not dealt with, and I see a question in here, you've never played with NLP before. So you could say, okay, what I took from this, despite not having like that impact is now I understand the data pre-processing for text data. And now I understand that if I'm looking at one scenario versus another, I should use uh, tokenizing or bag of words and being able to speak intelligently to that. So um, being able to meet, maybe have a takeaway of something that you gained that you didn't know before working on that project um, and then explaining that in uh, the star format, I think is uh, helpful for making those passion projects look a little bit more serious or get taken seriously more for by interviewers hopefully that answers. okay so uh, uh, what you're saying is uh learning experience is also very valuable to talk about i mean yes. okay to, to clearly explain what you what you learned during the project absolutely Okay, thank you so much. And I love NLP questions also. So. Yeah. <laughs> I know precisely zero things about NLP. So if anybody does, then they can take a stab at Mark's question, but go for it, Mark. Well, it could also be like an ML and production question as well. But essentially, I recently got an NLP model in production for our product. Um, it's super simple V1, but still in production, which is a whole beast in itself. Um, And the challenge was essentially is that our first run of this in our product was for our biggest client. And my code basically broke the whole pipeline because NLP is very computationally expensive. Thankfully, I was able to work, work around with our team to figure out a way to get it going through. Um, but my question specifically is one area that's not really impactful, but I know it's slower than I want to be is the tokenization step. Um, so for context for people at NLP, um, you have your text, your corpus. Tokenization is essentially taking all the words 
um, or spaces where it is and creating a token from it. From there, um, your NLP model can do various things like remove stop words or limitize. Um, and so that tokenization step, when I have logging now for, for all of it because it takes so long and I need the engineers to know what's happening. Um, <clears throat> and the logging step, the longest step is that tokenization process. What are ways to speed up the tokenization process for NLP, because that's kind of the necessary step for, for what I'm doing. So I can't just get rid of it. Um, I, from what I've read, it looks like parallelization is the way to go about it. Um, and for context, I'm using Spacey, which is like deemed as like this production level NLP tool. Um, I'm just curious of like, just ways to speed up tokenization because uh, for now it works, but my 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 data science senses are telling me it's gonna blow up again. <laughs> um, maybe I'm being too pessimistic, but I'm like, I want to get ahead of this, or like I, my perfectionism is like, I want to get it better. I want to run faster. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'll open this up to anybody who has uh, experience working on this. Uh, but before we do that, I just want to say that there's an awesome blog post on Comet ML that was done by Nicholas Lascaris on getting started with NLP US airline sentiment analysis that's right there in the chat you guys check out that blog post and check out how comet ml can help you experimenting with nlp uh but go for Ideli. yeah i was gonna say so i have not put a ton of nlp models into production um but i think you hit the nail on the head finding ways to parallelize it if you can um i'm not sure if you're working with hadoop or spark clusters but um just yeah yeah i think that might be the fastest easiest way to not deal with this specific issue of just breaking things because it does take a long time and then unfortunately is like the most computationally expensive part of NLP um, as, as when you're in production and working with live data. And Mark, I think, um, uh, I forget his name, Dennis Rothman. He did, he created a book called Transformers. Uh, he does NLP stuff. So maybe you can check out his book. Uh, that might be some clues in there because yeah, tokenization is a big thing. Uh, yeah. So he might have some, I, I don't know too much. I did one project in NLP and I was using the RNN and LSTM to do the tokenization, but I think RNN and LSTM is kind of getting old. So I think people are moving towards transformers now. So yeah, I can't say too much about it, but check out his book. Uh, he's uh, he, he has YouTube videos too, I guess. So yeah. So Christoph, I saw you uh, shaking your head rather vigorously during this conversation. Um, is this something that you might have experience with? Uh, no, because I don't have any professional experiences, but experience yet but nlp is definitely what what i'm aim, aiming for because it's just so interesting and there is endless ideas and possibilities it is really crazy how how great nlp for the future is and i just find it really interesting and mark you mentioned spacey i discovered it like three weeks ago and it was like instant love because it is so crazy so well documented and you can do so much with it it is great but unfortunately i i, I cannot tell much about it yeah no problem uh, 
see Carlos is unmuted. Do you have any insight here, Carlos, or was that just on accident? I'm guessing that was just on accident. Um, anybody else have any tips on how to get tokenization faster for Mark? I, mean, I, have, I have a comment for people then. That, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just one major bug that I spent a lot of time putting this in production. So Spacey is deemed as like this production level kind of uh, essentially they take all the research. What's the best of the best? And like, here's this one model. You don't have to think about it. Uh, and that's why I use it for, for this use case. Um, but the challenge is, so when you have things in production, you have to put your requirements into a file. And so like the script says like, hey, here are the requirements. Um, you have both the spacey model or the spacey package, but then they have their separate models, which is essentially like their serialized machine learning models, right? That, that you have to load in. Loading in that step does not work well <laughs> with, with production systems. Um, the reason being is that they're so massive uh, because it's like a huge, like, you know, NLP machine learning model, right? Um, it, 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 there's, they can't have a package for it that you load in. So you have to read it in via GitHub link. If you read it in via GitHub link, pip freeze, which is typically used for a lot of, uh, a lot of kind of production setups, uh, doesn't play well with that link. And so I dug through hours through like GitHub links um, and so one way to kind of work through that is essentially you have to create your own pip repository locally if you want to put it in production. Uh, a quick way we did that was after the pip freeze, we just did a replace with the correct term to get it going through. Again, startup, try to make things move fast. But that was one of the biggest hurdles I experienced when putting Spacey into production was the requirements so if anyone's listening and thinking about Spacey, hopefully I saved you hours <laughs> um, because it took me a couple of days to like dig through and a couple of engineers to figure this out. I mean, that's excellent, excellent tips. Uh, thank you very much. So yeah, I mean, hopefully if anybody listening on the podcast or on YouTube has some insights, send me an email and then I'll get you connected with Mark um, or, you know, Mark, there's something you might be able to bring up on a Friday office hour because I know there's a lot of NLP enthusiasts on Friday as well. It does not look like there are any more questions in the chat. So I'll go ahead and wrap this up, guys. Thank you so much for spending part of your Sunday with Iodeli and I. Really appreciate having you guys here. Uh, take care. Have a good rest of your weekend. And if you guys found this useful, if you guys enjoyed this, do me a favor. Shout us out on LinkedIn. Tag me, tag Iodeli, tag Comet ML. Spread the word. Let's get these things popping every Sunday because I know there's a lot of people out there who want to have conversations like this so appreciate if you guys help us spread the word uh you know you can use the bitly short link which i'll put here is http colon slash slash bit dot ly slash comet dash ml dash oh so check that out guys help us uh spread the word and then get get these sessions bigger and better uh take care everybody have a good rest of the weekend remember you got one life on this planet why not try to do something big cheers